0: Amen. John chapter 15 this morning. Um, We're going to do a one-stop here in the gospel of of John and then uh, the next couple weeks, I believe, we'll be um, looking at a couple things that the Lord has just laid on your pastor's heart. And so we're going to still, while we have opportunity, make our way through the gospel of John. We're only going to cover... Uh, just four verses this morning, John chapter fifteen nine through 12, but it's a, a sermon I've entitled Love and Joy. Uh, we looked a, a couple weeks ago in John chapter 14 about the connection of love and obedience, and now uh, uh, the gospel of John and, and Christ really is continuing on the same thread of the connection between love and joy. And so if you would, uh, for the honor of reading God's word together with me, would you stand that we can acknowledge here that God himself has spoken to us his people Uh, Let's look at what the Word of God says in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. This is what Jesus is saying to His people, to His disciples, to those who are following Him. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, what a what a marvelous word it is. And Lord, we thank you. That, that we can sing that song with Miss Tammy, that we have been redeemed. And Lord, at the end of the day, that is all that matters. At the end of the day, nothing ought to be able to rob us of our love for you, to doubt your love for us, and to cause us not to have joy. Because we have been redeemed. Father, would you help us see this morning the connection to all of this uh, opportunity to doubt and all of this opportunity to not have joy. And Lord, the direct connection it has to our faith in the gospel. May we be encouraged and strengthened this morning by your spirit's work unto your praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I've said this morning, uh, again, we're continuing kind of on the the same sort of wavelength of thought about the subject of bearing fruit in the Christian life. You remember in the previous text in John two weeks ago, in John 15, uh, Jesus taught us about the importance of bearing fruit. In the passage before us today, Jesus teaches that what that fruit looks like with a specific focus on love and joy in the Christian life. As many of you know, Southern Baptists are quite often referred to as the frozen chosen. Have you ever heard that saying before? And I dare say, many of us, I love you, have earned that title. But no Christian, Southern Baptist or otherwise, should allow themselves to be so concerned with doctrinal orthodoxy that they sacrifice love and joy in the process. In fact, it ought to be the case that the more sound you are doctrinally, the more that love and joy flow from you. So then as we look at our passage this morning, our hope and desire is that we might learn that that what we are to believe concerning God and what his requirement is for us, his people, in regards to love and joy. So I want to begin just by giving our attention to what it says in verse 9. Jesus is speaking to his disciples again here, and look what he says in verse 9. This is one of those statements that if you really meditated on it, if you just spent an entire 15 minutes of your quiet time on this verse, there is a depth to it that really should cause you to lose your breath. It's that astounding. Look at what he says. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. This is profound. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's not simply saying the Father loves me and I love you. Now, There's truth to that, certainly, but that's not all he's saying. He's saying, just as I have loved you, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. I have loved you in the same way that the Father has loved me. You see that? If you really want to know the degree to which Jesus loves his own, then you do well to look at how much God loves Jesus. That's astounding, friends. We're going to really consider just this aspect, uh, this this love aspect here, uh, in, in two aspects. Two aspects of the Father's love toward the Son, and how that then relates to the Son's love toward us. For starters, I want us to see that, and I want us to know, that the Father's love towards the Son is eternal. The father's love towards the son is eternal, which means something, friends. If the father's love towards the son is eternal, then the son's love toward his people is eternal. eternal. Absolutely, it's an eternal love. God has always loved the son, and if that's the case, if you belong to Jesus, then His love toward you is also eternal. Meaning, it it never began and it never ends. Paul makes that actually quite clear in Ephesians 1. One of those things I really just, let's be honest, I don't quite understand all the way, but it's what the text says. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1, and look what the text says. Paul is saying to the church, to those who are loved by God, he says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. Who? The beloved. See, Even before the world began, even before the world was created, God had set his love and affection upon you if you belong to him. Christ's love for you, it's eternal. It goes way, 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 way back. And you know, you think about that. Isn't it absolutely phenomenal that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would have any thoughts of you whatsoever from eternity past? And yet his thoughts towards you were loving. That's an amazing thing to consider. And it ought to cause us to wrestle with this a little bit. It's astounding information. God's love is eternal. Secondly, I want you to see that the father's love toward his son is also unconditional. And friends, if the father's love toward his son is unconditional, then the son's love toward his children is unconditional. Unconditional. The father has always loved the son, and get this, it's not because of anything other than the fact that he's the son. There's a relationship that has a father and son, and this relationship is the basis for the father's love toward him. It's fundamental to the relationship that they love one another. Likewise, Jesus' love toward us, if we belong to him, is unconditional, unconditional. Jesus doesn't love us based on anything other than the fact that it pleases us, pleases him to do so because we are his children. He doesn't love you because you're obedient. If that were the case, his love would fluctuate all the time because you're disobedient on a daily basis. His love for you, it doesn't ebb and it doesn't flow. His love for you is constant and it's because it's conditional. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's not based upon your performance. It's based upon his saving grace. I was telling our Sunday school the other day in just a a raw moment of confession that there are times when I discipline my daughter um, and and I I always am am put in check because there are times when she knows she's in trouble and I think she's just doing it just to mess with my mind now. Uh, But she turns to me and she'll always say, Daddy, are you happy with me? And I just, I get taken back a little bit and I just, I melt into this mush of a human being, right? Because I'm like, of course I'm happy with you, sweetheart. God gave me you. I will always be happy with you. And you know why? It's not because when you obey, I'm happy and when you disobey, I'm not happy. It's because you're my daughter. That's the only reason. You are mine. God gave me to you. And I am always, always, always so happy that you're mine. Friends, that's how it is with the Lord and us. It's not based on anything we do. It's based on our status as his children. And therefore, his love for you is unconditional. And proof of that unconditional love can be seen in what we read out of Romans chapter 5, right? Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a manifestation of his love. I mean, if he were willing to die for you and show his love for you while you were a sinner, don't you think he is going to continue to show his love for you once you are in Christ? Once you are his children, once you've been adopted into his family, once you're his heirs into the beloved? It was while we were sinners, while we were disobedient, while we were rebellious lawbreakers, it was while we were still his enemies that God demonstrated his own love for us and that Jesus Christ died for us. So again, if God loved you, even when you were his enemies, is there any real question to whether he's going to love you now that you're one of his children? What basis would you have for questioning his love towards you? Well, I think despite that, there are still reasons we have doubting that Jesus loves us, don't we? Seems like every time something bad happens, we go straight there. God, I thought you loved me. Well, why? Why do we doubt his love for us? What are some reasons and how can we align them with the word of God? I think it's easy to look at our lives and the amount of sin and, and for that to lead to the question, and uh, do you love me? I just know this. It's always sin that's the basis for questioning God's love toward us. It's always sin. And I think the first reason I think we begin to doubt that is part of that comes from the fact that in our old nature, in many ways, we still want to be under a covenant of works. We really do. Reasons you begin to doubt God's love for you is one is is because we still struggle with living under a covenant of works. There is a performance-based attitude that is ingrained in us by being made in the image and likeness of God the Father. There is something in us that, that drives us to say, I want to earn this love. I want to merit this love. Friends, we've got to put that in the right perspective. We have to understand that as a child of God, we are no longer under the covenant of works, and that's a good thing because you fail the covenant of works. You will never be able to merit God's love for you because the standard's perfection, but you've got something better. You're under the covenant of grace, you're in the covenant of someone coming down and meriting things for you and then giving that righteousness over to you in the work of Christ. That's far better. The book of Galatians was written to that end. That the covenant of grace is far better than the covenant of works. So was Hebrews as well. Friends, another reason we cause, uh, that causes us to doubt that, that God loves us comes upon us from time to time is the fact that we get sin into our lives and that sin is getting in the way with our fellowship with the Lord. Sin is hindering our fellowship with the Lord. Sin hinders our fellowship, and then when our fellowship is hindered, it causes us to whether or not we uh, to think whether or not we have assurance of our salvation or assurance of God's love. Let's think about that, friends. The thing we need to do when we find ourselves in that situation is to remind ourselves that God's love for us is unconditional. We have that's such an astounding truth. We have to continue to come back to that truth. He didn't set his love on us initially because of our obedience. Therefore, his love toward us now cannot and is not contingent upon our obedience. And then, friends, once we're assured of his love, we're reassured of his love, we will find the fruit of his love toward us will result in us coming to him in repentance and turning away from those sins that so easily disrupt that fellowship, causing us to doubt his love. See, it all goes together here. That's why the Lord adds what he does to the end of this command in verse 9, telling us that we are to abide in his love. The more we abide in his love, the more assurance we will have that he does, in fact, love us. Remember that word abide? We looked at that two weeks ago and looked at the, the actual meaning of that word. To abide means basically to remain or to stay. So Jesus is telling us there what we need to do is stay or remain in his love, which would lead us to the question, how does one do that? How does one stay or remain in God's love? Well, look at verse 10. He's actually going to give us the reason or the way. He says, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Abiding in his love is tied to bearing fruit of obedience in our lives. There is a logical sequence to all of this that we really need to understand. It's not that our obedience to God's commandments results in our being loved by God and then abiding in that love. No. Rather, the sequence goes like this. Because on the foundation that we are first loved by God, we will keep his commandments and we will remain in his love. Do you see that? It's so pivotal that we get this. R.C. Sproul was actually, uh, he recounted something that one of his professors used to say when he was in the Netherlands. This professor would say to them, he'd say, Gentlemen, the essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. I love that. He's absolutely correct. The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. The gist of what we're told here in John 14 and 15, really for the last two chapters, is that the heart that has been changed by God and knows the grace and love of God will result in obedience to God's law in our lives. The evidence that we know that we're Christian, right? If you're living in continual unrepentant disobedience, you've got no evidence to base that your heart's been changed unto the Lord. If you are and you see yourself not a prideful way, a humble way, notice that there's growth in you towards Christ. Notice that there's growth in your desire to be obedient. It is nothing but assure you that God is the one changing you and you're assured of his love and salvation in your life. The heart of the child of God will be just like the heart that's expressed to us in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, where he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Did you hear that? He delights to obey and to walk with the Lord. He delights to obey the word of the Lord. And friends, if you love Jesus... You will keep his commandments, and if you truly love him, those commandments won't just be a burden to you, but it will be a delight. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, John says, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Did you get that? They are not burdensome, and friends, this is a problem because you're thinking and feeling probably right now, man, there's, there's been some commandments in my life that are a burden unto me. That's your flesh. You need to put that part to death. These commandments of God, they're burdensome to the world. They should be. To those outside of Christ, it's a great burden that no man can carry. But in Christ, we are given the grace to walk with him and to obey his commandments. Of course, none of us do it perfectly, but the Lord is with us, and he will give us the grace to follow him and to grow in his likeness. Let's move on to verse 11 here. This is really one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Verse 11 of chapter 15. These things, Jesus is saying this, this is the words of Christ here. These things I've spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. I love this. What what we're given here is really kind of a purpose statement on Jesus' ministry. He tells us one of the reasons that he has said and taught all of these things is that his joy would remain in us and that our joy may be made full. Do you get this? All that Jesus has said and done up until this point is for our joy. That's, That's astounding. There are many people in this world... Let's be honest, who know nothing about true joy. There are many disgruntled people in this world, and you know it if you have kids and you've ever watched Winnie the Pooh. And anytime Eeyore says anything, right, you're like, I know somebody like that. Like, seriously, I know somebody like that. They're disgruntled, they see nothing of the good in life at all, they're joyless. People who, even when you try and pay them a compliment or say something to try and brighten their day, they just flatten it out to nothing. Yeah, whatever. They are people who don't know what it is to have joy. And, and listen, some of these people are the ones that, that really, and honestly, we might pity in this life. People who, in their lives, they're, they're suffering from terrible diseases, or people who have had terrible childhoods, or people who have been used or abused their whole lives long. People who have slaved away at their dead-end job for 50 years, only to retire with little or nothing to show for it. They're upset. They have no joy in lives. And there, there are some really sad, pitiful cases in the world. People for who the word joy is a foreign concept. But, but even more pitiful than those people in the world are those in the church who are in those very same kinds of situations, but who on top of experiencing those various troubles find no relief in belonging to Christ and His church. People who come to worship week after week after week only out of a sense of duty and obligation rather than a love for the Lord Jesus. People who, although they hear the joyful message of grace in the gospel, find no joy in it and in themselves. See, friends, if you belong to Jesus, you ought to be familiar with joy. Joy ought to be a reality for you. Friends, it is not to say that you won't endure some strong storms and very difficult trials in this life. But friends, for the Christian, even in the midst of such times, the true believer can be filled with joy. Not necessarily joy over the situation itself, but joy because they know that no matter what comes to pass... They know the grace of God. They know the grace of God, which means they are eternally secured in love, and that makes the heart rejoice. Friends, I, I, don't, I really hate to get personal here and, and think about this, but I just I'm looking at faces out here today, and I'm just reminded of some of the difficult trials we've walked through together, and there's nothing that brings your, your pastor's heart more rejoicing than to see you fight for joy. Fight for joy. I love it I love it I love walking through and and seeing people like Miss Kay Barber who's going through chemo treatment this week fight for joy and Don and Lou and what they're continually walking through and they're fighting through joy through tears through struggles yes it's hard yes they're late nights but they will not give up on joy and you know why because it's not theirs it's been given to them by a gracious god who has imparted his joy into them and he won't let them give it up Amen. what a tremendous gift it is to see those in the church fight for joy friends there is not a greater example of grace into the world than to see believers walk through trial after trial after trial and fight for joy Oh, there's so many in this church. I don't want to leave anybody out because there's just all of you. Miss Vicky, my sister, God bless you. She's fighting for joy. Brother Terry, fighting for joy. And you know what, friends? Joy is worth fighting for. It is. Because at the end of the day, we've been given the grace of God as a gift. And that brings joy in the heart of a believer. Praise God for joy. Now listen, there's there's a good reason for the Apostle Paul to feel like he has to continually remind us, right, of of our need to rejoice. Why does he do that? Because it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to forget that we are to rejoice. It's easy to allow ourselves to become so overwhelmed by our circumstances that we fail to see the road to glory that's ahead of us. It's easy. We've been there. Amen? All that Jesus has said and done up to this point and even beyond is for the purpose of bringing joy to his people. And listen, it's not a joy that's contingent upon circumstances or emotion. It's a joy, once again, that's based upon his love, who he is, his character, and his work. Friends, if you're a Christian and you find that you're having a difficult time attaining or knowing this joy, if you're one of these who's just always depressed, down, always blue, then we've got to examine ourselves because there's something wrong here and there's something wrong in, in, in three different parts. There's either something wrong with your view of how God views you or there's something wrong with your view of the gospel or there's something wrong with your practical Christian living. One of those three things is off kilter if you find yourself never able to have joy. Always depressed, always longing, always struggling. So let's look at these Reasons why it's difficult to have joy. Let's look at why we may not have joy. And it it aligns itself with those three views. Some of us may feel gloom because you're failing to appreciate the good news of the gospel. You're failing to appreciate the, the, the good news of God's free grace. Maybe you're struggling in your walk because all you see is a father who is always upset with you. Who's always got a constant frown towards you. Church family, listen to me. If you are in Christ, we need to go back to the basics and relearn the fact that God loves his children unconditionally. We need to remember that he doesn't have a constant frown towards you any more than he would have a constant frown toward the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Remember who you are in Christ. When God looks at you because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the righteousness imputed into you because of Christ, when God looks upon you, he sees the beauty of his son. So don't allow yourself to think wrongly about how God views you. Friends, if that's something that's making you down, don't think that way. Know who you are in Christ Jesus. When you do that, it's essentially the same thing that my daughter does. Wondering in discipline and trial, God, are Daddy, are you happy with me? We do the same thing, God, are, are you happy with me? Remember, his happiness is not based upon your circumstances or your trials or even your obedience. It's based upon the work of his son, and it pleased the father to even bruise him. That's why. Jesus went to the cross so his joy may be made full. There's nothing more delightful in Christ's eyes than his children who have been redeemed. Of course, you might be without joy, secondly, because you've yet to experience the joy of salvation. It may be that you still haven't been converted. It may be that you're trying to earn God's favor through your good works instead of trusting the perfect works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, there there aren't just a few people, by the way, who go to church and who have yet to be converted. They are thinking that they are Christians, but they are not, at least not yet. Not yet. And how do we know? It's because they have never known or experienced the joy of their salvation. In fact, there are churches who are filled with members who have yet to experience the joy we're discussing this morning. I'm talking about churches where there is no gospel being preached. Talking about those churches where all the people here is law, 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 sermons of law, with no gospel or no grace, where moralism is the rule and the message from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Churches, when you first see them, they might look good on the outside, but as Jesus says, they are like whitewashed tombs because inside they're dead. They know nothing of the joy of the salvation that God has given. These are the people that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, where he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. What a waste. There's no substance to it. And friends, in that case, it's easy to see how people who think that being a Christian means keeping a list of rules will lack joy. Isn't that reasonable? There can be no joy in that. There's no joy in rule keeping for the sake of rule keeping. There's no joy in believing that God will only love you if you live a good enough life and keep the rules of your church. Not at all. Finally, the other reason why you might be lacking joy in your life and this is probably mostly the case in mine, is because there are times where you lack obedience. See, friends, joy and obedience go together. It's not that God holds back joy until you are obedient, nor is it the case that he will only give you joy once you're obedient. Rather, it's, it's simply the case that there is joy in doing what the Father commands. There is. There is joy in doing what pleases your father. It's not that you earn it. It's not that that God will only give you joy when you're good enough to deserve it. There's joy in pleasing your father. Listen, this is probably a poor analogy, but I just remember as a kid, uh, I played all-stars one year in baseball, and my dad was the coach. You know my dad, he's a competitive guy, right? So he he delights in winning. Uh, And I wasn't very good, all right? Let me just be honest with you. In fact, uh, I was picked on the all-star team because I was the coach's son. Uh, and I was second string, right? So I'm not even good enough to start on my own dad's uh, baseball team. But uh, I loved baseball, and there was a time uh, where we were uh, playing in Northside All-Stars. I was like 12 years old. We were playing uh, uh, Normandy, and they had like a killer team out there in Normandy. They were just destroying us all the time, and we were getting beat so bad, I don't think we had gotten a hit yet, Uh, and I got to come up To bat because we were getting beat so bad, didn't matter. Let's throw the coach's son in there. Uh, And I got to belt a single over the first baseman's head and run to first. And I just remember uh, that I, you know, I love playing sports, I love being competitive, but I remember thinking. How much joy there would be in doing something that my father was, was pleased with, right? Uh, even as broken as that may have sounded, no, he didn't, he didn't. His joy was never contingent upon how good I was in baseball, no. But I remember not even being really excited about the fact that I got the hit, but that I knew my, my dad was going to be so happy. Friends, that's, that's what it's like for Christ. It's not that we earn that. It's because we love the father, And there's joy in doing what the Father commands. There's joy in in things that please the Father. And what pleases the Father is obedience. When we walk in obedience to God's word, it's a joyful thing. That's why the psalmist says he delights to do God's will. It's also why in Psalm 119.35 he says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. I delight in it, he says. It's why even in times of trouble, and write this verse down, by the way. He says, the psalmist says in 19, 92 through 93, he says, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Isn't that the case? How many times we walk through trials and we say, Man, if I didn't know Jesus, I don't know how I would have made it through this. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. By them you've given me life. So friends, if you're at a point where you're lacking joy, you would do well to examine yourself, see if it's because of a lack of obedience to the Lord in your life. That's often the case. Ask the Lord to grant grace to you, to repent, and you will be reminded of this joy of your salvation. Look at verse 12 finally, and we'll we'll close with just one thought here. Verse 12 of chapter 15 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now at this point, Jesus now turns his attention to his love toward us to see, uh, to to transition now into how we then ought to love one another. And let me just say to you friends, this is where the rubber meets the road in your Christian walk as far as our love for God is concerned. There's there's one aspect of this love I like to bring to your attention. I think I've heard it a couple times over the past couple months and I may have thought it a time or two to be honest, Uh, but I sometimes hear Christians say something like this. Well, I love them, but I don't have to like them. I love them, but I don't have to like them. Maybe you've said that to yourself. I've certainly have that feeling at some point. Maybe you haven't said it, but you've had that feeling. I'll love them, but that doesn't mean I have to like them. Friends, when we talk or think that way, what we're really doing is looking for an excuse in how we might not have to love somebody. That's all we're doing. All that is is an excuse to be disobedient and not to love someone. There's a pastor, Gordon Ketty who said this, and I love this. He said, this love-like distinction is more often used as a justification for practical hatred when it should be the opportunity to demonstrate some real love. Love becomes the theory, and liking, or rather disliking, becomes the practice. The theory, not putting into the practice, serves to sound the conscience of somebody who knows he is supposed to love even his enemies, but what he actually does is indulge his dislike in a variety of more or less subtle ways. Who is fooling whom, he asked. Love that remains only a theory is no love at all. After all, the challenge is to love people when we dislike some of their habits or attitudes. In other words, friends, he's saying that this distinction between loving and liking doesn't hold water for the Christian. Do you think that Jesus makes that distinction? Do you think that Jesus loves his people but doesn't like some of them? Is it, is it possible that he loves you but doesn't like you? That's, that's not possible at all. <laughs> Jesus not only loves all those who belong to him, but we're told that he even delights in us. There could be no doubt that Jesus both loves and likes us if we belong to him. Therefore, we must also learn to like those who we're supposed to love. It's, it's not going to be perfect, friends. You might try and love some people and they just won't receive it. I've been there. That's okay. Do what you can, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking that it's simply okay to simply say, I love them, but I just don't like them. You can't do that. Friends, you need to ask the Lord to change your heart for that person because it just doesn't jive for the Christian. So I'm closing up. Let me just very briefly say this. Love and joy are two things that every Christian ought to enjoy and every Christian ought to manifest to some degree or another. So let me just ask you, as 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 we come to our time of reflection and worship, if you're lacking in any of these areas, would you join me together to pray for the grace of God to not only have love and have joy, To also bear fruit in them and from them. I pray that we would do that now. Amen. Would you stand and please join your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we have seen many wonderful things from your word. God, you have been gracious to us to give us the gifts of love and joy. Father, we acknowledge that we're only able to love because you first loved us. But we're only able to love you and serve you because you have set your love upon us eternally and unconditionally. And Lord, it's the same thing with our joy. Lord, yes, we, we fight for joy. We fight for love. Yet, Lord, we know that you are the one who's given it to us. So, Father, if there is any area here where we may struggle to doubt your love for us, or we may struggle to have joy, and it's been revealed to us through the word of God why that is, Father, we pray that we would repent Father, we pray for your grace to help us repent and to help us walk in you. We pray that in our time of invitation, after the song of reflection of worship, Father, we would bear one another's burdens and just admit and say, I'm fighting for joy. Would you pray for me? Or maybe there's here, someone here, Father, who has never experienced the joy of salvation. They know it. They've not once had the joy of knowing that as we sang earlier, they have been redeemed. Father, if that's the case, we pray you bring conviction to their hearts. Lord, that today would be the day where they get to experience the joy of salvation. Lord, not the joy that's going to fix all their problems, not the joy that's going to make this life just easy breezy, but a joy that lasts because it's from you. We pray all this as you seek to work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.